to Ouija Broads. This is Devin. This is Liz. Liz, we are continuing our exploration of Skid Road. I love it. Love it as well. What I like is I was able to spend a little bit of money on eBay to get a original source material for this episode. Ooh, okay. What I loved about this source was the cover, which says... In which the truth, the whole truth, and a lot more than the truth is told about the forgotten city which lies beneath Seattle's modern streets. Liz, my dear, we are talking today about Seattle's underground. It's time for the underground. Speaking of those, though, the other day I had ordered a 1920 Orpheum theater (gasps) program, and I want people to know that I opened it and found out it was from a John Considine theater in Spokane. (laughs) So that's what he was doing. He was running the Orpheum. I wasn't doing that on purpose. I was just buying Spokane vintage things. (laughs) Is that the one you showed me? Yeah. Yeah, with like the the mesmerist on the back. (laughs) Mesmerist. Yes, the like child mesmerist or something. something about a male nurse heard him preach about ghosts. Uh, it was a lot to take in. It was a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. And because it was from, you know, like 1792 or whatever, you know, it was letter set by hand. So mm-hmm. some guy had to stick each and every letter of that in backward to talk about some nurse listening to a child talk to ghosts. Marvelous. Oh, Marvelous. Boy. Let's get underground. Let's get underground. The ephemera, I told you I bought this this first first person resource or original resource, whatever I should call it, was important because it was written by the self-styled curator of the Seattle Underground Tour himself, Mr. Bill Speedle. That's the guy. We've mentioned him briefly. He also wrote the mm-hmm. Doc Maynard book that I'll probably be relying on heavily for the next episode. Did. He did. Bill was a, in a couple of different sources, he's considered a history revisionist because when the the settler history of Seattle of, is talked about, for the first 50 years, Doc Maynard was left out of it. It was all Denny and Yesler mm-hmm. and those guys. And he was the one that kind of rediscovered Doc Maynard's ish, his like whole thing. So I'll let you tell me about that. But I thought that was really interesting to read in several sources that he was considered a revisionist because he was so against the the grain of Henry Essler was like this golden <laughs> god. Sometimes history needs some revising. Yes, it does. But that's always something yes, to keep in mind that even does. when you're using these sources, one scholarship or one fact that's presented mm-hmm. as fact, I don't know. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just one person says something. Right, just one person says something. History's written by the victors. You know, <laughs> History's written by whatever. the people with publishing deals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, so tell me about this oh, book with man. this very long name. This book with this very long name, it's a pamphlet that he produced when he started the Seattle Underground Tour in 1968. Well, he started it in 1965, but it didn't really have its first official tour until a few years later. So before I tell you about the underground itself, like what is below my feet as we speak, we'll talk about Bill briefly. Yes. Bill was a columnist. He was a self-made historian. So remind you of two people you know and love? Because <laughs> that sounds an awful lot like us. Well, yeah, what kind of columnist? He wrote for several newspapers around here, but the 
part that we care about is that he wrote for a section called the Seattle Times Troubleshooter. And that was where citizens could write in about, hey, I've got this question about Seattle or this question about Seattle history or other things. And that's how kind of this whole underground tour started. Bill was already super into preserving Pioneer Square. He, since the 50s, had been talking to people in positions of authority in Seattle saying, Pioneer Square and the surrounding area is historically important. We've got these gorgeous buildings. It's the largest collection of Victorian Romanesque buildings in one area surviving in America. I love it down here. There's rich history. There's interesting characters. Let's preserve it. And in the 60s, he got really into this idea of preservation in Pioneer Square because, as you mentioned, in a very recent episode. At that point, the Great Seattle Hotel had been knocked down to make way for the sinking ship garage. Indeed. Bill, along with some other citizens, are doing everything they can think of working with city council and local representatives to try to save more of Pioneer Square. And he got this interesting kind of back-end opportunity when a woman wrote in to this Seattle Times troubleshooter in August of 1964. And here's what she said. We have read several times about the early day Seattle storefronts and sidewalks, which are still intact underground in the First Avenue and Yesler Way vicinity. Any tours of this interesting area available to the general public? Oh, ho, ho, ho. Oh, ho, ho. You kind of wonder, like, Bill, did you salt the pot? Is this one of your buddies writing in? (laughs) Well, Bill responded, and he said, no, there aren't any official tours that happen regularly. I've given some tours of the area. I know some stuff about it. Do do you want to just kind of hang tight? You want to know more? If you do want to know more, just write me a letter at the uh, Pioneer Business Men's Association, and I'll see what I can dig up. Over the next two days from the time he published that paragraph answer... He got over 300 letters, and his phone would ring off the hook with people clamoring to take a tour of Seattle's underground. Hell yeah. People were really into it, more so than he realized. He said that over the next nine months, he ended up with, he guesses, about 600 people helping him to establish, first of all, that, yeah, there is still a city such as it is, buried underneath the Seattle we see today. Yes, it still has things that are culturally significant. And indeed, there's parts of it that we can restore. There's certainly parts of it we can preserve. And we can find ways to share this with people in some kind of tour situation. Amazing. So he's got these people who are backing him. And he's pretty sure that it's viable, you know, that what is underneath our feet in Seattle can be brought to light in some literal and figurative way. But he's got to convince the Seattle City Council that this can happen. And he gets an idea from a brouhaha about topless dancers. 
(laughs) And he loves this story. Bill credits the go-go dancers, as he called them, with saving the underground. Because in 64, Seattle Council passed, I guess, an ordinance where topless dancers into Seattle had to wear tops. Could not be a bare-breasted dancer. And it happened because 25 citizens wrote into the city council and said they didn't like it. And Well, then don't go look at well, it. Well, then don't go look at it indeed. But Bill goes, okay, if 25 people can make it so that we no longer have a dancing industry in Seattle, I've already got 300 people who want to see Seattle Underground. So yeah. what if they all write to the city council? Okay. He got to work. He had those 300 people that he knew had already written him saying, I'm interested in it. Mm -hmm. He starts getting more people, more letters, more interest. He got a letter from someone as far away as Cairo, Egypt, saying they were fascinated by this, wanted to learn more. I'm so curious how they got a hold of the newspaper. (laughs) Right? How did this? I don't think it went on like an AP bulletin or something. Mm. Maybe they just carried a weird newspaper over there, or maybe somebody brought it with them yeah. and left it. Yeah. You know how it is when you're at a vacation house sometimes, you're reading, you know, Life magazine from 1997. <laughs> Indeed. You're just like, dang, dude, the places this magazine is gone. <laughs> I'm in Oklahoma. Why am I learning about a retirement community in Florida from a brochure here? <laughs> but... So we've got Bill, we've got his letters, he's hounding city council. A group of high school students clean out 10 tons of trash from the underground to make these tunnels that are there passable in an approximately safe way. And he's got dozens and dozens of other people donating their time and their money and their know-how to make underground tours a thing, to open up the Seattle underground to people. Right, because it's not like a cartoon cave or something where you're just going to walk in and there's a level floor. No. Nice head clearance and everything. No, I mean... Ten tons of trash, good God. It wasn't until May 1965 where the Chamber of Commerce, they did this day called Know Your Seattle Day, and they contacted Bill and were like, okay, do you want to, like, I don't know, for a dollar a person, lead some tours down there from, like, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m.? You can take people down there. Fine. And Bill went, okay. 500 people showed up (laughs) with their dollar bills, ready to walk around these creepy crawly basements, essentially, underneath Pioneer Square in Seattle. That, and the fact that Bill gets 100,000 signatures on a petition to preserve Pioneer Square, he takes it, 100,000 signatures, he takes it to the mayor and they go, okay, okay, Bill, great. And finally, in May 1970, the city of Seattle adopts an ordinance that names 16 square blocks in Pioneer Square a historic site. So now the buildings above and the parts below them are protected. Good job. Great. So we've got Bill. We've got an underground tour. Okay, like you said, how... How did the how did a city get down there? 
how, yeah, why, how <laughs> and why is there an underground to go tour? Yeah, this is not normally, it's not like shark's teeth or something. It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, you see the old city will push its way down and then, no, what is this? Why is why is there a city underneath the city? Yeah. That's not usually how they do it's that. That's not usually how they do that, no. Now, of course, I do know because I have been there and I think it's very cool. Yes. But I, I have to pitch you this and also I kind of, do. I understand like how it got there, but not kind of what happened between then and Bill's arrival to the scene. So I'm I'm very interested in this. A lot of things had to happen for Seattle to get an underground, for Seattle to get a city below its city. We've talked about these in pieces before. One of which is Seattle's shoreline is trash. I mean, it is built on trash. Yes, this is not judgment or or condemnation. No. It is simply descriptive. Very descriptive, yes. I mean this in the literal sense. We built up our shoreline with trash. With With (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So good. Be like a radio DJ in the morning and you just have that queued up ready to go. I'm on my own sound. You are. (laughs) We don't have the rights to that. I don't we're gonna have to delete that. (laughs) The other thing that happened was that Seattle had a hella big fire. Mm-hmm. trademark like tm that's its name hella big fire both of these things the shoreline made of trash and the hella big fire tm are what contributed to seattle being built atop seattle yeah when settlers came here in the 1800s of course the first thing they did was push out the area's indigenous inhabitants right it is known then they cut down all the trees so what they're doing is going we're bringing in more people we're building infrastructure we kind of boxed ourselves in like there's a ton of stumps that surround us that we don't really have the technology to deal with quite yet huge stumps when you think about the trees that they were taking down huge just build a house in it just build a house in it exactly (laughs) forest creatures oh yeah we'd all be like chipmunks in these beautiful little homes i would have loved it seattle's also got a big hill so that's hard to build on and then there's the ocean so they went well we can't can't really build up the hill we can't really build out into the stumps we have a bunch of sawdust though and (laughs) people create trash so let's start building out into the ocean let's a bold move a bold move in in terms of city development like usually that's a late stage choice Mm -hmm. i feel yeah Yeah. usually that's something that you get to in due time yeah this they were like yeah we don't fucked up okay i guess we're gonna just build some more coasts i guess we'll yeah it's more ground i mean it's not stable but we can walk on it this counts and it's all got to go somewhere. Did you know that's the the area over by Monroe, like where the Spokane Club is? Oh, yeah. All, all that is rubble from the Spokane fire. Is it really? Yeah. That's the like, fill. That's, they, they filled a lot in over no there. No way. After our great fire. Because, yeah. I mean, what landfill, you know? What landfill, right? <laughs> right? My collection's knowledge is a little bit fuzzy because I haven't been in collections in a long time, but basically any time that Seattle builds something by the waterfront, you have to have an assessor come out and check to see if it's a site of historical significance because A, we did nothing but take land from the indigenous inhabitants, and then B, 
we built over the top of our own historic sites. So you always have to have people go out and be like, oh, okay, well, what did we find? Did we find Native American artifacts? Did we find anything, you know, from any of the Coast Salish tribes or peoples? Did we find uh, what happens to be an old settler cemetery? Did we find an old Masonic lodge? And actually, we should turn this into a site of significance. But you always find something because the shoreline was built on trash. There's always (laughs) bottles. There's always things that people threw out that you take for a moment and you go, well, this by itself could indicate the presence of something important. But probably it's a landfill. Yeah. So what the folks in Seattle are doing is they're putting down sawdust, they're putting down trash, they're building out into the ocean, they're putting their houses and their structures on stilts, because even though they're building ground, I mean, the the water table is significant and has quite an impact on that. It's tidal, baby. Tidal, baby, is right. Mostly you build, like, a bit upriver from the tidal inlet and outlet. But apparently with both Seattle and Portland, we were, like, too hard. Too hard. We're not doing no. it. We're just going to be no. right here. No. At the big flushing like part flushing where the part. water goes fastest. Oh, my God. It's just, like, let's build the human equivalent of a lily pad on an estuary. Yeah. And we'll this live will be on good. It. We definitely will not lose major chunks or indeed entire cities. No, no. When this goes no, awry. No. Damn it, we picked the spot. We're sticking with it. <laughs> it's like big dad energy, isn't it? Like, nope, I yeah. sat here. This is where I don't care that there's a bench 10 feet that way. I'm here. I'm in the mud. It's fine. I'm making it work. Making it work. While Seattle's doing this, it's the 1850s. And you know what becomes the rage, Liz, is indoor plumbing. Mm. Everybody and their mom is like, oh, okay, there's a toilet in the White House. There's going to be a toilet in my house. I can see how it would have been an adjustment mm-hmm. to, to say the hole where your poop goes. What if it could be under the same roof as you? Yes. And if you had not grown up on that, I think it would be kind of alarming, especially when you consider the state of the technology back then. Yes, yes. I think it was Yesler that was pretty famously quoted for being like, there will never be a water closet right next to your bedchamber. Disgusting. How would you do that? And I'm like, (laughs) okay, calm down, guy. Like, you're crapping in a porcelain pot that you slide under your bed until the maid comes and gets it. So you're cool. (laughs) But with all of this happening, with all these houses that are down on the tidal flats, getting toilets, we start building sewer systems. Some of these are very, very big structures, but for the most part, it's like a wooden box, like a long wooden square tube. And every now and then they put in brick archways so that when wagons drive on top of them, they don't totally cave in this wooden pipe. They had a lot more wood than anything else, I guess. I yeah. had to, when we moved in, deal with a sewage system or our, our house's connection to the city sewer was yeah. not much younger than what you're describing. Yeah. And it was very, so you're just going to make this out of any old permeable material, just, put it underground, right? and hope for the best. Right? Huh? Cool. Right? I'm from the future and I hate you. I hate you so much. They used to make pipes out of terracotta. The most That's what we had. The most porous a clay can be. Yep. 
It's better before you bake it if you want it to hold water. What are you? Oh! It was a birdhouse for every tree root. <laughs> yes. It was just like, come here. Yes. This is what I'm for. This is what I'm for. I hold the water for you. The stuff that I plant my orchids in because their little roots know to go toward the clay thing that holds their water. Goodness. What I'm trying to get at here is that bunch of houses, new water technology, very poor sewage system, tides equal twice a day, people's toilets work in reverse. That's, I, no. Yep. No, thank yep. you. Yep. No, thank you. I remember this. Yep. From, I mean, it's a pipe. Yep. And I guess what goes up must come down or vice versa. Yeah. If the tides are coming in, but mm-hmm. I gotta say, I think Yesler might have had a point. <laughs> I think Yesler might have had a point is right. If my options were either an outhouse that only works one direction <laughs> or <Gravity>. an indoor <laughs> poop gun, <laughs> then I think my choice is clear. I know, right? Right? Your choice is clear. Well, that's kind of what people did when, when the Great Seattle Fire happened June 6, 1889, and all of that burns down. People basically go like, hey, cool, an opportunity to rebuild and like maybe not have shit geysers in our homes. <laughs> What did they do? Like, did this really happen twice a day? Yeah, when the flood came in, so did everything that you pushed out to see. Well, though, why would anybody have a toilet at all? It's 1850. I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't born yet. Okay, I guess I'm trying to imagine how bad this is. Is it like you get a bad smell, or like you have to wash the entire floor? I have read that you had to wash the entire floor. This is nonsense. This is a fad <laughs> for fools. Lin- Malingerers. <laughs> Malingerers. Liz is still on Yesler's side, pooping in a porcelain pot that the maid takes out. Hey, that's not my problem anymore. <laughs> Once she's gone. It goes to wherever things go. It probably goes to make more Seattle. It goes to I'm make- helping. Yeah. <laughs> it's infrastructure, Devin. Damn it. <laughs> infrastructure. <laughs> And then it's out of my house. Oh, my God. It's out of your house and it stays out, presumably, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's really... <sighs> I mean, there are a lot of, of ways to manage this universal human problem. And as a public health issue and technology, I could talk about it forever. Yeah. But really, the one thing I think every system agrees on is once it goes away, it should not come back. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you can decide how far away is, whether you're like, I don't know. Samuel Peeps and it's just in your cellar or Gross. you're, you know, putting it into sewers or an outhouse, whatever. It, it is supposed to go further away from you rather than coming back yeah. to haunt. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. thank you. Yeah. It's not a boomerang here. No. I feel like we've spent a lot of time on this. Uh, and what I really want to get to is the fact that when Seattle burns, when 25 square blocks burn and no human lives are lost... People are like, radical, new start, clean slate. Let's just rebuild and make it better. And they thought, what we have now is the opportunity to deal with a couple of problems at once. If we raise everything, if we build the streets, the buildings, the homes higher, we don't deal with the tidal issue. Gravity helps us a whole lot with the sewage. And... We're brand new and beautiful. 
as well as the city passes an ordinance where now all buildings in downtown have to be made out of stone or brick, not wood, not flammable stuff. So mm-hmm. folks are going, great, it's going to be really pretty. And that also means if you had a wooden building that survived in whole or in part, too bad. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry. You can keep it, but guess what? It is about to become a basement because this is how we get the Seattle underground. <laughs> what happens is they decide to literally build on the ashes. They being, you know, the engineers, the city planners, the people are like, cool, what we're going to do is build walls basically at the curb line around city blocks in downtown. And then that makes like a channel, an alleyway between this guy on the west side of the street and that guy on the east side of the street. So now the road we can fill in with dirt and however high these stone walls are, we can build the dirt that high. So now there's a walkway that would be at the roof level of all these structures. There's a road at the roof level of all these structures. So I'm trying to envision this just because I'm I'm so bad at spatial rotation, but basically if there's a building, let's say like uh, the buildings on the left side of this image. Yeah. So the the building, and then there will be a walkway with a wall on the right side of it. So the building, walkway, wall. Yes. And then on the other side of that wall is the street that they're filling in with yes. dirt. Yes. Okay, so the walkway actually is down at the original street exactly. level. Exactly. You keep your sidewalks for the time being down at the original street level because the businesses that survived that have entrances are still down at that original street level. So you've made a reverse moat. You've reverse engineered a basement kind of, but you've got like this road and it's a whole story above the old street level and people and carriages and stuff are like walking along these 12 to 30 feet higher than the front door roads. Like they're, Old-timey construction guys eating their lunch on, like, an I-beam. Seriously, you down. know that wasn't, like, well-lit oh, and no. <laughs> easy to no. avoid the edges No, of. at least 17 men fell in and died because oh of God. this new thing. Liz, what you did, if you want to go down to, like, the five and dime, that's the entrance is now 20 feet below where you and your horse are standing looking over the abyss to its front door. You use a ladder. Oh boy, can I? <laughs> You're a slippery, <laughs> wet ladder down into this thing that smells like a tide flat? Yes! This unlit Yes! You... I don't have any... And then what, I carry my groceries out on my back as I go up the ladder? Like a Sherpa, I suppose. Uh, I don't care for this plan. People didn't either. They were like, cool, this works for now. We've built the roads. We're kind of done with this tomfoolery of hiking our Victorian asses up and down these slippery, shit-smelling ladders with our, you know, plastic, or I guess our paper bag full of, I don't know, oranges and corncob pipes, whatever Victorian people buy. No, that's right. So did they fill the streets up because that's what the city owned or because they wanted to leave the businesses open or what? They built the streets up to leave the businesses open while at the same time 
raising the streets and what they're about to do above the level of the tide line. Because the next phase of this plan is to cover over the sidewalks, like with a little roof, to cover over the business roofs with floor and build new stuff now at what is street level. I guess I can't follow why they didn't just fill it all in. I don't know. At once. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's like reverse engineering a basement, you know, because once you build Mm -hmm. a new brick storefront on new street level, you have below your business whatever it was you used to have. So now all these businesses have storage. They've got basements. They've got space to rent out as opium dens. They've got space to rent out as brothels. They've got illegal gambling parlors built in. Prohibition comes. You got yourself a speakeasy. You don't have to sell me on why it would be cool to have a whole building under your building. I'm just trying to go the step where they built a bunch of walls and then only filled in within the walls and then filled in. Yeah. Presumably the... No, they didn't fill in the sidewalks. They didn't fill in the sidewalks. They did not fill in the sidewalks. They kept the sidewalks, which is a very unique, bizarre feature that gives us the Seattle underground today. It's those sidewalks that they didn't fill in that when you're on an underground tour here in Seattle, you're walking on. That's so wild. Bizarre. So in some places, they had two blocks, right, separated by a street. And instead of making you climb up one ladder like Donkey Kong, go across the street and down the other ladder, they engineered a tunnel. So you could cross between these two blocks underground. Not all of them, though. So the Seattle Underground, while huge and labyrinthine, isn't all connected. When you go on an underground tour, you're going up and down through layers of history and stories, like, you know, building stories, and bizarreness because you're going in from one block, you're going down a set of stairs, you're kind of tootling around this block where all the sidewalks were, maybe going under a tunnel into another block's connection, and then you have to surface again to present-day street level if you want to cross the road, go down an alleyway, and enter a different part of the underground. It doesn't all connect. This sounds like a fantasy world thing. Oh, man. This sounds like some fictional bullshit. Z- where yeah. it's like, oh yeah, we have this whole city under the city where, you know, it's all disjointed, but it's yeah. old versions of everything in the real yes. world. Like yes. this is all very London Underground, like Super never London where Underground. Yes. Ankhmore Pork, which is the main city yes. in the Discworld series I was talking to you about, is the same way it is built on itself and it's explicitly called out in one of the books as a reference to Seattle doing that. Uh. And he was like I know that sounds made up, but I could not make something up that weird. That's really just what happened. Right? It is weird. It's so weird. And I mean, businesses still use their basements. They were still using these as sometimes legit, sometimes illegal, other businesses or storage or auxiliary buildings or what have you until 1907 when the city condemned it. They condemned it because they figured it was a breeding ground for the bubonic plague. 
Uh, the whole underground? The was? whole underground? Yeah. So the whole underground in 1907 was considered condemned. You could not go down there. I mean, I think about, I can't get over the horror movie potential and the thematic weirdness of there's this older original version of yeah. your world that's literally just beneath and it's all connected with these tunnels yeah. that are windy and ill-lit like yeah. anything could happen anything could that's happen that's just terrifying oh, it feels like yeah it feels like you could turn a corner and anything could be there it's not like in if you've seen futurama their underground where the mutants live is like quite cavernous. You know, it's got sky for what it's worth. This is not that y'all. This is like being in shipping containers that somebody stuck together. Like the tubes that you let kids crawl around in at the McDonald's. It's basically like if, imagine if you went into the basement of an old house yeah. and it had a door and there was just more basement yeah. and more basement. Yeah. And like every house yeah. in the neighborhood was connected at the basement. Yeah. yeah. And it was dirt. Yeah. yeah. And all these basements are not the nice suburban finished basements. Mm-hmm. These are all the no, punishment room. The, yeah. <laughs> they're your basement. They're the punishment room we had in that house on Hogan. They are. Yeah. Well, you've been there. What, uh, what do you remember? When you took the underground tour, what does it look like down there? Like a mine, I would say, because of the... the, (laughs) Sorry, you sounded like Gimli. A mine! (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's got all the the wooden structures and truss, you know, all the support structure going on there. And then there's sort of the uneven ground of it that's on either side of the path that you're trying to stay on. Yeah. I mean, you definitely feel underground. You know it, you're it's underground. very, very underground. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time, but I should go do it again. I haven't been since, well, before the pandemic for sure, but probably, probably 2018, I think was the last one I went on. There are now several outfits in Seattle where you can take underground tours, but the Bill Speedle underground tour is the original one. If you folks are, are listening and you want to do it, that's what I'd recommend going on. I'll tell you a little bit about the tour, of course, before I get into the ghosts that you may or may not encounter if you take a tour. Before I tell you the next part, I want to take just a moment to talk about this episode's sponsor. Let's do that. Yeah. As you know, it's our girl Jessie from WashingtonStateLandForSale.com. And I was on her website when I was visiting Spokane for Christmas because I'm like, obviously, I need to move back here. And experience all the spooky weirdness of Spokane for myself, so I'm gonna find a farmhouse or something to live here as a creepy old hermit. I found it, obviously. I found it, because Jesse has cool stuff. This is 10 acres on Eagle Ridge Lane in Spokane, so that's gotta be out by, like, the golf course, right? Kind of the highway that goes toward Pullman, kind of the... For $400,000, we can have 10 acres, and what I'm really drawn to is that it's got this cabin in it with this big ring of grass, you know, like the trees have been cut down, so you've got this meadow area, but then you're just surrounded by trees, and you've got this little skinny little dirt road bringing you to your log cabin. Wow. The inside is gorgeous. It's like, it looks like a log cabin, like made out of Lincoln logs, you know? 
It's got the wood beams. It's got the the stove. There's an old-timey piano in it. Oh, they got a piano in there. I don't know, but it's got to be one of those things that it showed up one day and just every owner since has been like, I'm not Mm -hmm. carting that out of here. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's, you know, got like the A-frame, so your bedroom, the loft area is up in that little triangle area, and... What I want, and this is what I was fantasizing about when I was in Spokane with Jason, is what we want is a cabin where we get snow such that we're inside, we're safe, we're warm, we've got a fire going, we've got a bunch of quilts that I made or that you've made or, you know, that I've inherited from great-grandmothers, and we're able to sit with Coco and watch the snow fall over these pines looking out into the beautiful Spokane Vista and we watch the night come in. Then we're snowed in and we're like, hey, sorry, we can't go do a bunch of errands or go to work ever. We just have to live here until spring. <laughs> but I just love this. This place looks like it would be magical in every season. Like you're surrounded by pine trees, but there's enough brush that you know is just going to go crimson in the fall. And the oh, yeah. meadowy area looks like it is going to be nothing but wildflowers come spring. And I'm sure in the winter, it's just a fairy tale. It's a magical little winter wonderland. And then the photos that were taken of this are during summer. And I can see, I don't have to imagine, I can see how gorgeous this place is. Like, you can tell that it smells like grass and fresh air and mountains and the old wood from the deck. I'm getting legitimately not sure how long you'll keep going if I don't say anything. I'll just, you are working yeah. way too hard. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that was like, no. <laughs> just straight up spitting like Martha Stewart ad copy. <laughs> Off the dome. <laughs> Off the dome. I want to subscribe to your lifestyle brand. You're welcome. Yep, I'll do it. Wow. I'll do it. <coughs> I just can't turn it off. What can I say, Liz? This is why they pay me big bucks to be a marketer. What a gift. What a gift. What a gift, I tell you. Well, folks, go check out all of the beautiful land that you can buy. We can be neighbors. I'm not going to live too close to you because part of the fantasy is that I get to be a little bit hermity. But go to Jesse Sells Land on Instagram or go to WashingtonStateLandForSale.com to find your dream property. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. Okay, let's get back to the Seattle Underground. Yeah. The new buildings that get built on top of Seattle's underground. Those are, for the most part, the buildings that Bill Speedle in the 1960s was campaigning to save. Mm. They are made of stone or brick. They're often elaborately decorated or carved on the outside. If you're in downtown Seattle, if you're in Pioneer Square, you'll see a lot of archways made out of stone and then brick Between them, you'll see a lot of relief carving, many of them in the style called Victorian Roman Revival, I think it is, Victorian Romanesque. Anyway, it was a Mm. revival style where, of course, the Victorians were super into the Greeks and the Romans, and they were like, yes, give me a Corinthian column. Yes, give me a Doric column. I'm super in love with plinths. 
Like, fuck you guys, get out of here. <laughs> so but into plinths right so now. So into plinths right now. They're like super hot. So you'll find a lot of that kind of iconography being revitalized in the Victorian era. And these big, beautiful buildings, I mean, they were banks and they were hotels and they were lodgings and they were business centers. So they're they're gorgeous, sturdy, beautiful structures that because of Pioneer Square becoming, or I guess staying Skid Road, because that area being seen as undesirable by certain developers, by certain members of high society in Seattle, the buildings became disused. They fell into disrepair. That's why they were on the chopping block, much like uh, the Seattle Hotel that got turned into the sunken ship parkade. Basically, developers were like, cool, what this land is better for is if we tear down all of these Victorian buildings in the 1960s and we turn them into parking structures. They would have, you know? Yeah. And now you can walk down Pioneer Square and they're they're gorgeous. They're so beautiful. I'm sure that they take a whole lot of money to heat. I'm sure that they take mm-hmm. a whole lot of money to upkeep. But I'm so glad that they're... There, they're one of the things that really makes Seattle stand out from other cities visually, at least that part of it, you know, Seattle Mm -hmm. for being a skyline that is made up of cranes, you know, there's always new construction happening in Seattle, and I feel like it's looking so homogenous. That part of downtown where buildings are six or seven stories high, max, made out of this gorgeous hewn stone and brick With these very elegant carvings, it gives the place, I feel, a real beauty and personality that's pretty fucking unique. And I'm so glad that they're preserved. Yeah. And somehow managed to preserve the stuff under them, too. Because, you know, if they had knocked down the buildings, they would have said, and we can take what's in the cellar because it's crappier and we need the land. Even crappier. Nothing down there but... Trash. Of course, for me, who loves other people's trash, it's all treasure. It's all (laughs) stuff that needs to be preserved, and I should have it into my house. And I'm just so glad that somebody else is taking care of it so that I don't have to. (laughs) It's so cool that after all that, everything stayed and could be turned into an actual thing you can explore. You can actually go because I know there's places like that in a lot of cities that there's you know this nightclub is still there under this restaurant or Mm -hmm. whatever but they're not connected because they didn't do this weird double layer cake thing yeah and they're not public you know they're they're, if you happen to work in the kitchen you can maybe go down there on a break and see this old place yes but it's not a place you can buy a ticket to yes It's, it's so wild to think that this place this skid row that so much of what's been on Skid Row is still there. Mm-hmm. And s- underneath. Yeah. Which is very spooky. Yeah. Still there, still accessible to people. Like you said, it's not just a, oh, well, you kind of have to know the chef and he'll take you down to where they mm-hmm. store the wine that also happens to be historic. It's a, well, you can pay 30 bucks and go on this tour and see a whole bunch of this stuff. And what's down there, I mean, it's a, it's a literal time capsule. Some of the things down there, of course, are just, you know, trash businesses since 1889 you know when they were rebuilding right have stored stuff down there so trash gets down there and stays long enough and it becomes an antique right but you know (laughs) they were still tossing stuff down there in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 
businesses still have basements down there that, you know, every now and then you'd have some stuff in your basement and you're like, well, well, I don't need that anymore. I don't want to haul it back up the stairs. I can just kind of yeet it out into the hallway, I bet. I have that vague recollection from the tour that you will pass buildings that are now the basements of other buildings. Yes. And I don't get the sense that they particularly care that they're on the tour. Right. They're like, this is just our building. Right. If you can look you can look at the outside if you really feel the need, right. but I'm not gonna like try to put a little historic scene in here for you. I Correct. this is my storage. Correct. You came to look at my garage, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> no, right? And some of the places, you know, you're not looking into their basement, you're looking into the wall that surrounds their basement. Because mm-hmm. they're like, hey, there yeah. used to be windows and doors here and uh we're gonna brick that up so that we can mm-hmm. keep our whatever we store down here away from you. But that's thrilling to me in its own way, that this is not something that people went in on a certain point in time and said, we're freezing it here. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a, a historical artifact that survived rather yeah. than was saved. Yeah, And so it's still just clinging to the outside of what is now Seattle. Yeah, yeah. And it feels to me a little bit like public art in that like, oh, okay, well, you installed this sculpture and well, someone tagged it with graffiti. Is that destruction of art or are they actually adding to the story? So don't go down there and like toss your Twix wrapper and be like, whatever, I'm just <laughs> creating artifacts for three generations from now. Story. Yeah, uh, <laughs> But it's still very much, I guess, like, like living, breathing, working, area that you get to experience the history of and also like cool there's a guy that came down here because his business stores their um records in in a in a climate controlled part of this that we don't access yeah i've taken a couple of tours and what i really want to do is the bill speedo group has an underground paranormal experience um, it's a tour that they only offer certain times a year, but they give you all of the like ghost huntery stuff, like yeah. EMF detectors and, um, and those laser pointers laser that do pointers. a whole field of them. Yes, right. And then a uh, you know a little tape recorder to try to catch EVPs, and I think that would be a hoot to do. Yeah, they also have something called the Underworld Tour, and it's where they talk about. Tour that you take during the day is PG, maybe PG-13. They are very euphemistic about sex work. The Underworld Tour is when they talk pretty specifically about the sex work that went on in that area. And they take you to the brothel that you can see underground or the areas where brothels were and talk a little more substantially about that. I, I don't know if they do a good job talking about sex workers, so I can't recommend it, but I don't think you can go wrong with an underground ghost experience. So that one I'm excited for. Yeah. When you start the tours that I've taken, you are in a historic Pioneer Square building. They kind of set you all up in a theater and this theater kid turned tour guide makes 500 jokes about Tacoma. <laughs> Correct. I see you've taken this tour as well. Yes. Definitely would love a tour where I never had to fake laugh at jokes like that. And you just gave me a key and I signed, I left you like my driver's license and, you know, a hundred bucks in cash as a deposit. And I'm like, so I can just go look, right? And come back 
Don't. I just want to go vibe. Yes. And I promise I won't wreck stuff. Yes. Can we all be cool for like a second? Yes. I want that. But no, you, you do have to put up with a little bit of the theater kid energy and some bad jokes. But for 30 bucks, you get 75 minutes and you're bad at estimating distances. So sorry to put you on the spot and also insult you at the same time. I was just going to ask you like, how long do you think we walked on that? It's got to be like less than two miles. Yeah, I, it's, it was a long time ago. Yeah. I don't remember it being like a, a hike of yeah. a walk. It's kind of like a lot of city walking tours. Yeah. And that it's a lot of walk along, stop, listen yes. to something. Walk along, stop, listen to something. Yes. Pretty, pretty reasonable, pretty manageable. Yes. Although not the most accessible no. for wheelchairs and stuff, as I recall. I don't think they have... ADA accessibility because you're going up and down stairs a lot. Of, I mean, this yeah. was built before elevators were mm-hmm. not invented, but in in wide use. So what I recall is that there's not an ADA full tour. There are some areas with ramps where I think that you can go experience part of the underground if you need to via a wheelchair, but certainly not the whole tour. And they do talk about like how it's hard for Kids with little legs, you're probably going to be carrying them for part of it because you are walking and you're on such uneven ground. It's, I mean, the, thank God for those high school kids in the 60s that cleaned up 10 tons of trash, but mm-hmm. you're walking on rickety old boards. You're walking on shitty old cobblestones. You are stepping over uneven floor heights and things like that. When you're down there, you will, like you mentioned, see kind of what looks like old basementy tunnels You'll also see building facades, some wood, some brick. You'll see old windows and doors that go to nowhere. What I remember most about it is just how odd space feels down there. I mean, it's not, it, it wasn't lit by electricity back then. It's And now it just feels like those those garage lamps that dads had, you know, like Mm -hmm. wire cages around a bare light bulb just strung up with a bunch of extension cords kind Mm -hmm. of illuminate places. And so you'll walk past a building that doesn't use its basement and the doorway is gone. And there's just this like yawning gulf of black. Yeah, it is work lights and it is not multidirectional. Yeah. And yeah, the the un I don't know, unpretentious, the unpolished Unpolished, of the facades absolutely fosters that kind of thing. Because yeah, it's not they're not trying to recreate something and show you this is what it was like. They're saying this is what it is like. And sometimes Yeah, yeah, it's not that's very eerie. It's like walking past a body or something. Yeah. It's Yeah, absolutely ghost town feeling. It's not like Disney's yesteryear where they recreated the (laughs) storefronts from 1890. It's just like, hey, what up? This didn't burn. Or this did burn. Have fun looking at it. (laughs) I think my favorite part about the underground tour are the pavement lights. They're also called vault lights. Do you want to tell folks what those are? No, I want you to. I was just, I thought about bringing them up earlier, and then I didn't, so I was excited. You know them, of course, from the Underground Tour, but you're also a Spokane girl, so you've seen them in Spokane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What it is, I guess they're quite popular in Britain as well, because London's got an Underground too. 
And what they are are square chunks of glass that are set in a grid into the sidewalk to allow sunlight to filter down to whatever's beneath them. So these are set in sidewalks where there's a basement or there's some kind of cavity underneath as essentially a skylight people can walk on. Little teeny, teeny, tiny skylights, like, I don't know, what, three by three inches yeah, or so? Yeah, and they're, you yeah. Know, so you'll have these these square blocks that are three by three inches, like Liz says, but then they're set in a grid, so you'll have, like, four feet by six feet, maybe. And because they're glass, and it's old glass, where the glass is made from sand silica, not pure silica, apparently... I'm not saying this in the order in which I want to say it. What I'm trying to tell you is that the glass appears purple. And it looks purple because it's old glass. And old glass is purple because when they made glass back when from silica that they got from sand, it's got a lot of impurities in it like iron, which will give glass a greenish tint. And so to overcome that, they use a decolorizing agent. They use a different mineral or compound that'll help take the green out of it. A popular thing they used was manganese dioxide. Oh my God. Manganese dioxide apparently reacts to UV light. So over time, you had clear glass skylights that got hit by sun so much that they turned purple. It's a really pretty purple, too, and I never knew. I knew it was because they were old, but I didn't know it was because it was a reaction to some specific thing they did. I thought just old glass do that. Old glass do that. Right, right. Oh, they're so pretty. So you'll see that in antique shops if you're looking at what are called crystal doorknobs. They're glass doorknobs. If they were in a spot in the house that got a lot of direct light. And they're dated from this kind of time where glassmakers are using silica from sand and then decolorizing it with manganese dioxide, they'll be purple. Or you'll find insulators that went on top of telephone poles, electrical poles. Mm -hmm. Also, they'll be colored purple. You'll find it on bell or mason canning jars that somebody sat in a window. Wow. They turn purple. And you can date them. Anything that's purple like this was probably made before World War I. Because in World War I, there was an increased demand for manganese. And so the U.S. stopped using it in their glass production. They went to selenium dioxide, which is also a decolorizer, but it instead turns glass kind of the color of like hay, like a yellowish color. This is the most actual facts we've ever had. I know. I I feel smart as hell right now. Right? You just taught me so much stuff. So when you're walking around downtown Seattle, downtown Spokane, downtown London, downtown wherever has these pavement lights and you see that they're purple, you can go, oh, yes, that's because of the manganese dioxide going through a process called solarization, which results from UV light reacting with the manganese. I can date this to pre-World War I because we know at that point they used selenium dioxide oxide is a decolorizing agent. Devin, slow down. You're going to get somebody pregnant. I know. Like, <laughs> come on. Hot AF. <laughs> let me nerd out about it. Don't, I know in uh, Spokane, you can see some on Maine, I'm pretty sure. And yes. then Howard. Yeah, Howard, Riverside, mm-hmm. all that original part, especially anything um, a little further west where, you know, around Washington yeah. and so forth where it wasn't raised to the ground quite yeah. the same way. Yeah. 
Yeah, and what that tells you, my friends, is that there is something down there. If you see those glass things inset in the ground, you're like, hey, guess what? That's a false street. There is a cavern under here. This business has storage, or there's some kind of entrance, or there are, you can have like utility access you know, like gas mains and stuff down there. So the the utility workers would be using this as natural light to see the stuff that they're working on. Oh, so cool. I mean, I loved every part of researching this episode, but I got so into the glass, as you can tell. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So that's my favorite part of the tour is looking up and seeing that. And also because it allows natural light down into the underground, Liz, you get ferns. You get ferns growing underground, and they're all, like, in the corners of stuff reaching up toward their little purple lights. Oh, my God. They came in on shoes and stuff, huh? Right? Right? Just got their little ferny asses in there, and they're like, hey, what up? I can grow where I'm planted. Oh, I love it. Oh, my God. Imagine if the whole thing filled in with green, (gasps) jungly fronds and vines mm. coming across the facades. Dude, you know velociraptors wow. would live down there, though. Yeah, they would. Oh, too spooky. Oh. Too spooky. Let me tell you about spooky stuff I can handle. Not okay. dinosaurs, ghosts. Okay. Of course, I'm not going to tell you about the underground tour without telling you that the underground is quite possibly haunted. Naturally. Naturally. And I've got some ghosts to share with you naturally we are underground what goes underground like bodies hello and yeah just like the shanghai tunnels like you can't no i'm sorry there's there's like some like two blocks max of underground tunnel before it's ghost territory for open season precisely and also i'm sorry if the underground wasn't haunted like what a waste this is Mm -hmm. prime ghost real estate we would have to advertise we would absolutely have to be like hey move in special like pet rent free (laughs) you know first and last deposit we'll waive that just come haunt this shit Mm -hmm. oh everything down there as we have said is like crumbling and decaying and old and you've got old signs and you've got an old street sign you've you've got the old crossroads side the wooden crossroads sign from occidental avenue and yesler where they intersected. Oh my God. Which we know uh, about the Occidental. We, we know, know about Yesler. This is like know. the intersection, the crossroads that Considine was running around on. Yes. As this guy's hunting down with a gun. Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. Literal. There's one part in particular that people really know about. It's like a like a stone closet. Like it's a real creepy looking thing. And then it's got this wooden sign that's hand painted that says Teller Vault on it. Ooh. This teller vault is the site of a very well-known ghost. And in fact, it was one of the few ghosts down there that I could find at least several places reporting fairly similarly. I mean, this is this is the problem that you and I always encounter with ghost stories on this episode is like where what is the truth? What is the center? Mm-hmm. What is the little the little hazelnut in this haunted Ferrer Rocher? that we are going to get to and say, ah, yes, I understand where this ghost story came from. Here's the kernel of truth that makes the rest of the story plausible. I never could get to the kernel, but I did get a lot of places that talk about this ghost. So I'll share it with you, even though I can neither confirm nor deny that the dude 
Edward, who supposedly his ghost haunts the teller vault, existed. Oh. The story goes that Edward was a bank teller at the Scandinavian American Bank that was at that location. And there was either a robbery or a shootout at the bank during which both Edward and a prospector are shot and killed. Okay. And what people see these days is a very tall man wearing a white shirt and suspenders. He's got a top hat, and he's got a glorious handlebar mustache. They say (laughs) outlandishly big handlebar mustache. And this is the ghost of Edward the bank teller who was shot and killed on this site. Wow. How do we know his name is Edward? Well, let me tell you. So glad you asked. Apparently, several people have captured EVPs of a ghost telling you what his name is. People will say, who are you? Or what is your name? And apparently, in many different instances, they get the name Edward. Or sometimes they get Eddie. Oh, that's cute. He's got a nickname. He's got a nickname, right? Edward haunts the Teller Vault, which is below what is today called the Yesler Building, which sits Mm -hmm. at 99 Yesler Avenue. So Scandinavian Bank was there when Edward was a teller. The road and the building got built up, and the Scandinavian Bank went, okay, our bank is now on New Street level. Great. It was a bank for many, many years. It ended up being a Rocky Mountain chocolate factory after, you know, the bank (laughs) sold the the spot. It's currently a coffee shop called Cafe de Art or something like that. The workers who work in Yesler Building, where the Scandinavian bank was, and who often have to go down to the basement, not to the teller vault, because that's on the tour, but they still have a basement you know, that butts up against that area that's enclosed. Mm -hmm. They feel the presence of a man. Mm. They feel someone watching them while they're down there. And in fact, one manager said that he got tapped on the shoulder Ah. while he was down there. Up in the lobby, people report seeing, huh, who's that guy? There must be a tour or a play or something happening because there's an Mm old-timey miner There's a prospector-looking guy up here. And they make eye contact with him, and he vanishes. (laughs) So this place, both below in the underground and then one story above, which is now street level, are reportedly haunted. I can't get over Edward's physical description, but he's got a top hat on, <laughs> but no jacket. But no jacket. So, like, right. he's got no jacket, but he's got right. a top hat right. and a white shirt. Yeah. And suspended. Like, yeah. was he working? Was he just getting in? Was, uh, Do people think that he did his job with his top hat on? This, I have so many questions, so many top yeah. hat-based questions yeah. You sh- yeah. about Edward's whole well, deal. Little known fact, Daniel Day-Lewis based his entire character in Gangs of New York <laughs> off of Edward the Bank Teller. I know, I know. Daniel, contact us if you'd like to be interviewed. I know you're very specific about the work that you do. We think you'd be a great fit. (laughs) Edward is the only named ghost I could come up with. There's a lot just in general of people reporting female ghosts. 
women ghosts, feeling female energy in the tunnels in various different parts. One of the biggest areas for reported female ghost activity is outside where the Oriental Hotel was. As I said, it was a brothel and people report seeing women all within that area that they assume Mm. were workers. Mm -hmm. But the tunnel has a roaming white lady. (laughs) Not not that kind of white lady. White White lady. (laughs) Not spelled Y-T. Like an apparition (laughs) that appears in all white, you know? Like the gray ladies. It's not a woman in white. uh, Yeah. White la- Liz, god damn it, they're called white ladies. Go look it up. Oh my god, my house has the same problem. That's when I can't find my phone. I would hate to encounter you at 2 a.m. Wandering around in your full Victorian garb as a white lady. Okay, but you know what I mean. Like, it didn't sound weird on paper or in my head. It wasn't until you laughed. Now I know what you mean. No, you should have known. Come on now. In in my, no, 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 no. Here's here's where my train of thought was at, which is, I was thinking about the visions that people have had of presumed sex workers in the area of the Oriental Hotel. And I suspect that demographically, very few people who imagine the women who worked at the Oriental Hotel are accurately understanding how few white women yeah. would have been doing sex work yeah. in Seattle at the time. Yeah. This would have been perhaps women who were brought over from Asia, yeah. a lot of Native women. Yeah. Again, this is not Jack the Ripper. Like, yes. This is not uh, Petticoat Junction yes. or whatever our image is of this. You know, This was a different clientele yeah. and a different set of workers yes. so when I, I was thinking about what they would have actually <laughs> looked like and then you said a white lady and I'm like oh okay a marauding in white contrast lady. to what I was envisioning <laughs> yeah, makes, <laughs> there was a logic right. to that you're right <laughs> <laughs> but it just tickled me <laughs> um, there's a female voice caught on an EVP that tickles me because apparently Someone was recording and they heard a really loud bang. There was a metal trash can next to them and it banged and reverberated. And the voice caught on the EVP said, I kicked the can. And <laughs> I love her, Your Honor. I love her, Your Honor. Right. Uh, exhibit A, my heart. For Ooh. this, I just love thinking that, you know, she knew that was a euphemism for dying as well. And was just like, hey, guess what? I'm going to fuck with you on your newfangled tape recorder. I've never heard kicked the can for dying. I've heard kicked the bucket. Oh. I just was imagining it as her being like, ha that was me. I did that. <laughs> Maybe. Scared you. Scared you, didn't I? <laughs> I got you good. <laughs> yeah. She's just entertaining herself. Yeah, she is. Yeah, she is. I have one more ghost specifically to tell you about, and it's my least favorite ghost because I feel like it's dumb fuckery on the part of the living here. In 2012, I got really excited because I thought I would finally see video or be able to hear an EVP because in 2012, Como News did an episode on one of the underground tour outfits, not Bill Speedles. 
And I was like, yes, awesome. I'm going to watch this video because they say they have an EVP and they say that they caught a sign moving on camera, even though nobody was near it. Well, damn it. This doesn't exist on the internet 12 years later, apparently. So Uh I couldn't watch it, but I could read the article. And what the article says is, so the reporter was interviewing Mark Simpson, a guy who ran or owned Spooked in Seattle tours at the time. And he said on their tours, they frequently heard the ghost of a little girl running up and down a certain set of stairs. I don't know how they know the the gender of this child, but they were convinced it was a little girl. And so do you know what they did? They put a chair and a doll down there for the little girl ghost And I'm like, do you want to get haunted? Do you want Annabelle the doll? Because that's how you do it. What's going on, Mark? Like, no, you feed stray cats, you know, but you don't give ghost children dolls. This is, this is, you're in Yellowstone, man. Do not try to put the baby moose in the back of your van. No! It's bad for you. It's bad for the moose. Yes. Somebody's yes. getting hurt. Yes. No, leave it, leave it alone. Leave this little yes. girl alone. She's running on some stairs. She's be, she, a lot of energy yeah. to burn off. Yeah. And now what they have is a chair and a doll that both move around down there. They left it? Of their own volition. Yeah, they left it down there. I don't support this. No, not only is it littering, excuse me, $250 fine, it is also asking for a reliquary to be created. This is going to sound really strange. I would rather somebody throw their proverbial Twix wrapper than than put out these major items that are going to be a hassle to move and mm-hmm. are like making it spookier on purpose. Yes. As much as I love, obviously love, the spooky aspect of history, you have to leave the history separate. You have to let people who are just there to enjoy it as history do that. And if I have a frustration with some of the ghost stuff that I've done, it's just because I went on the tour because it was the only way to see that building. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if they would just give me a normal tour, I would have gone on that. Yeah. (laughs) They don't. And I don't like this idea of people making the underground creepy deliberately. No. It's not a haunted house. It's not a haunted house. No. No. It is what it is. Let it be what it is. Yeah. There, of course, are other, you know, ghostly instances that I found written about online, but they are either one-offs or have zero supporting evidence or credibility, so... I'm not going to bring them to you. You know, a lot of people being like, "Mm, I caught an orb in this photograph. And I'm like, hello, Devin, an amateur photographer is here to tell you, you caught dust. Mm -hmm. It's kind of dusty down there. It's kind of dusty down there. You caught light reflecting off a spider web. You caught moisture droplets in the air. I know I'm a big fucking killjoy and I don't care. Orbs are (laughs) always dust. Get out of here with that bullshit. Let me, (laughs) like you said, I want the real spooky stuff. I want the real unexplained. Don't cloud this. Don't like trash it up with Mm -hmm. stuff that I am pretty sure is normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural. But that is the underground tour. I highly recommend people getting super nerdy about glass. And I highly recommend folks taking this tour because like you said, it is such a cool way to see 
stuff that you can't otherwise see. Whether or not you care about the ghost aspect, just a really cool way to experience history. And then, of course, if you care about the ghost aspect, like, take a bunch of photos and then tell me what you experience. Orbs. (laughs) So many orbs. So So many many orbs. orbs. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing the tour again. I didn't Mm -hmm. think I would be that into it, but now I have buildings that I want to look out for specifically. Yes. Now that we've done this whole Pioneer Square Skid Road thing, I would love to do the tour with you and then just spend the whole time being like, that's where Yesler was. That's where we know what this is. And then just annoying everybody around us with the facts that we know. (laughs) Let me tell you about glass, my friends. Uh, It sounds like a good time to me. Yes. Oh, I love that we got to take the Skid Road stories underground. I love that I got to talk about some ghosts. I love that it's a place that you and I have both experienced, but also that maybe we can go back and experience again with some new... Yeah, together. Together with some new history knowledge. I love that we got to talk about glass. (laughs) What was your favorite part about all of this? I liked hearing the part at the beginning about how Bill... Yeah, this interest in history and tapped into it mm-hmm. of the people who lived in his city to to save and to share mm-hmm. something like this. It's mm-hmm. just very grassroots. It's very. Yeah. I, I really do think people are more interested in history than they know. A lot of the time, yeah. I think that's part of what makes our stuff work for a lot of folks. Is yeah. we are all interested in this stuff to one degree or another, I think, at least a little bit, but it's often very inaccessible Mm -hmm. because, I don't know, it feels like when I read political stuff from other countries where you're like, oh man, I'm following the bare bones of this, but I know I am missing so much nuance about the backstory and the interrelationship situation, all this. So I I like history that is very accessible in that way Mm -hmm. of... It's a weird thing, first of all, and then it is a thing that you can actually go see and a thing that is presumably letting, I mean, it must have let Bill turn that into a business because now they're doing these tours all the time and probably helped make that place safe for at least a couple more generations. Yeah, for sure. It's given so many other people a different access point, different entry point to history and to Seattle past and that kind of I guess group buy-in is like what you said is going to keep it going for generations to come Mm -hmm. yeah I think those those walls have to come down between I don't know that history always has to be political and academic i think we've got an academic yeah. it's just neat that this was here and now you're here yeah yeah that's one of the things that i really am passionate about when it comes to museums is doing away with the curatorial voice nobody gives a shit anymore about this like high level i mean people people care and it's important i don't want to like yuck someone's yum <laughs> but you don't have to do this academic high barrier to understanding or entry. You can just go look at this cool thing. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it would be awesome if you knew that the historic and political 
history that went behind England up until the point of the Tudors to understand how important this one piece of scripture is that they unearthed from Elizabeth's reign. But also you can look at it and be like, that's heckin' cool. Somebody wrote that. Mm -hmm. They crushed up some berries and put it on a paintbrush and painted that thing. Isn't that pretty? Yeah. Yeah. We have, I believe, one more episode in us on Skid Road. Is that correct? Can I tell people that? Should um, I tell people that? I think that? that's a little more nailed down than I want. Okay, to go. sounds good. I think I'm gonna say we for sure have one more Skid Road episode. We know we want to do about Doc Maynard. Mm-hmm. I have been looking into the fair just because it was also very central, oh. but so far am not really finding much that is good, good content and of interest. It was okay. just kind of a thing that happened as far as I can tell. Okay. Sometimes the good dirt just doesn't get out there or it's yeah. not that controversial in the first place. Sure, so, sure. Okay. Anyway, I think we're going to do one on Doc Maynard and then we may wrap up with that one or if we find something else while I'm doing the Doc Maynard research, we might do that and then we will let you know what's coming next. We'll probably take a break to get stuff organized. We've been talking about potential options for our next season theme. Yes. And we'll let you know when we know. Uh so excited. This has been a really fun season. I love chunking it up in seasons. I think this is a really cool way to deep dive history in areas that I otherwise wouldn't have forced myself to stretch into quite yet. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, as much as I love this, I am excited to see what we do next. And Exactly. I, I'm happy to, I'm looking forward to giving a good ending to this season. And then I'm looking forward to figuring out what we want to do next. Yeah. What I like about the deep dive is that I think that before this, I would have said, well, there's not an episode on Yesler and Maynard and like some other Seattle city founder, like we can't do that. It's going to get repetitive. Right. But because we're building, we can say, okay, you know the history of this, you know all the context because we just talked about it. Now let me tell you about what happened yeah. with this other person. So yeah. the similarity can be a strength. That I've, I've enjoyed yeah. that. Opportunity for callbacks, baby. Well, we hope you continue on this journey with us, whether we do one more episode about Skid Road or 20 more episodes about Skid Road. Join us, my friends. You know I'm going to tell you to check us out on social media. Instagram, Twitter are where we're most active. I've got a fledgling TikTok if you want to come see more of my face doing weird stuff. We're Ouija Broads there. We've got a website. We've got our Etsy. We've got our Patreon. Our patrons are getting a sticker for this season. Seance and Chill is the <laughs> the text on this one. So those will be in the mail or in your hands if they're not already by the time this episode is out. But you can check out all the other merch that we have on our Etsy as well. So folks, you know what we want you to do next. We want you to live weird. Die weird. And stay weird. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.